We now come to our sermon passage. Uh, there's a misprint in the bullets, and we're actually in John 7 today, uh, 7, 1 through 13. And we're continuing on our, in our uh, sermon series in the Gospel of John. So I invite you to turn there, or it's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you're on the map, it's in this book. John chapter 7, 1 through 13, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea. So that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, my, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will be. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that this works for evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a revelation of who you are and what you're about, and thus a revelation of who we are in you and what we are about. In these moments, reveal the glory of Jesus to us and our hearts and love him all the more. Moved by your spirit to illumine our hearts, to see your kindness, your love, to hear your voice and obey your teachings. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm a big fan of the West Wing. I don't know if anybody else is in here, but I've seen it all the way through a few times. And one of my favorite characters on the show is a guy named Leo McGeer. Leo is the chief of staff to the president, and he's a longtime political operative. Um, and as chief of staff, he's kind of like the father figure to all these uh, folks that work for him. He's a little bit older than most of the staff, and they come to him for advice and things like that. And in one particular episode, his deputy chief, chief of staff, so the guy just directly underneath him, is going through a particularly rough uh, mental health time. It's time of great distress for him, and he doesn't know how to get through it. He's never experienced something like this before. And it's impacting his job performance. Like he's having panic attacks at work, he's having to run off, and you know, in a place like the White House, <laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> all hands on deck, all the time, right? Um, and he's going through this, this time, this impact on his job performance, and this deputy chief of, chief of staff is afraid he's going to lose his job. He's afraid he's going to get fired. And Leo knows it. Leo, the chief of staff, he knows this. He sees it happen. And so Leo, this incredibly important, busy man, prioritizes his deputy. He calls him the best therapist he can find. He waits for his friend, even on Christmas Eve. Even on a time when he should go be with his family, he's waiting. To see how his friend is doing. Leo is a man who knows a lot of grief and a lot of loss. He's come through some very dark times in his life and come out on the other side. When his deputy gets out of this session with his therapist, he's confused as to why Leo is still there. It's 
displayed at night, as we see, his confused and flabbergasted. And so Leo tells him this story. He says this. This guy's walking down the street and he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, Hey, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down here in a hole. Can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. I've been down here before and I know the way out. As long as I got a job, you got a job. Understand? That's what Leo says to this deputy chief of staff who's terrified he's going to lose his job. Leo joins his deputy in his sorrow, literally by his physical presence. He joins him in his heart as well. But not just as a shoulder to cry on. Notice in that story, it's not a friend just jumping in so the guy won't be alone. Leo's been there before, and he knows the way through. The friend jumps in the hole because I've been here before, and I know the way out. He can help bring his friend out of the depths of despair because he's been through it before. In our passage today, we find Jesus at one of the lowest points of his ministry. He's at rock bottom in, in modern parlance. His ministry has hit a brick wall. If you've read through the Gospel of John, I've pointed this out as we were in John chapter 6. Jesus has lost this massive following. John 6 starts with a, a crowd of thousands of people chasing after Jesus, begging to make him king. Will you be our king? We want to make you king by force. And Jesus runs from this. And then when Jesus starts to teach them, by the end of chapter 6, his following has dwindled from these thousands to twelve. If you're trying to build a public following, a big public ministry, that's a really bad job. <laughs> it looks bad from the outside. Things to our eyes are not going well at all. Now we're told here in verse 2 that the, the time for the festival of tabernacles is coming soon. And we'll get into the specifics of what that means next week. I, I, I'll dive a little bit deeper on what Feast of Tabernacles is and how that informs the things that Jesus says in chapters 7 and 8. But for now, just know this. Feast of Tabernacles was the event of the Jewish calendar. Now, of course, all the festivals were very important. Going to Pentecost was very important. Passover was extremely important. But of all the festivals, Tabernacles was the part. It was the one that was all celebration. It was a big deal. It was a harvest festival, so it was the end of the agricultural year. They had just had their big harvest, and their work was done. It was like the end of tax season for CPAs. Big party time. On top of that, the cool thing about Feast of Tabernacles is when you got to Jerusalem, if you were going to celebrate it, you wouldn't stay in like hotels. Well, they didn't have hotels. But what you would do is when you got there, you would build your own little tent outside the city. So it was a big camp out, hundreds of thousands of people camping out. Um, that's just fun by itself. And all the ceremonies about tabernacles, they were big parties. They literally uh, lit up lamps in the middle of the city so you could see in Jerusalem all night long. It was like, we're just hanging out, we're going to eat, we're going to feast, we're going we're gonna to love being loved by God. That's what it was. We'll talk a little bit more, but in, in, in our concept of what it, what it is, think of like Thanksgiving, New Year's Eve, and Labor Day all rolled into one. But instead of a day, it lasted eight days. 
these tabernacle people. The, it was the best attended of the, <laughs> the ancient festivals. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers here in this passage, point out to him, Feast of Tabernacles is coming up. The most people of the year are going to be in Jerusalem. You just had a low point a few months ago. And this is about six months after the end of chapter 6 when this you know, mass exodus of disciples had left Jesus. And they said, all right, you've lost your following here in Galilee. But you, you look bummed. You need to get out of the house and go to Jerusalem. Go now. Take advantage of this huge festival with all of these people gathering and put on a show. Notice, they say, do the works. Go there and do some, do some works. Put on a show. Gather more followers. Summed up in verse 4 where they said, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. They're looking at Jesus and they're utterly confused. It's been six months since you had this mass exodus of folks, and you're just hanging out in Galilee. You look scared to go to Jerusalem. God, there's a ton of people. Do some magic tricks for them, and we'll get this big following back. Now, I have to admit, this makes sense, right? It makes sense to me, the church planter. Go where people are. You know, we're looking at doing some outreach stuff this fall, Cotton Fest. We're going to what? We want the best tent in the best location. We don't want to be off in some dark corner or done uh, where nobody walks by. You want to see people. You want to interact. You want to give them the cups and the stickers and the things. You're trying to you know, build a brand notoriety, a name. It makes sense to me, his brother's ideas. His brothers are telling him, make a splash. Show up, do your tricks, and everybody will be amazed. You can rename in this disaster. After all, no one who wants to become a public figure does so in secret. But what does Jesus tell him? What does Jesus say? He's not just there to be a public figure. They're trying to make sense of him. But the way they're making sense of him is out of the desires of their own hearts. They're telling him what they would do. They're telling him what they would do. And they have projected onto him what they would do in his place. If you want to become a public figure, don't do it in secret. Which is what Jesus says, and what he means in verse 6. He says, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do it. For you, any time will do it. The purpose for which Jesus had come, he's saying, is not arrived. He isn't just here to get the most people following him. Following him. He's here for another purpose. One that they can't see yet. But for them, any time will do it. Because the horizons of what they think is good is limited to ideas of fame that only counts on repentance. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Honestly, if you have no scruples, it's kind of easy to get a follow. It is. It's all about marketing and image. If you have enough time and money to put into it, you can get a follow pretty easily. Effective marketing can overcome the worst flaws. I think we've seen that in the last decade of our political discourse in this country. And I'm not pointing out one single person, but if you say things the right way, if you play on people's fears, if you shout loud enough and long enough, then people will follow you. If you say what people want you to say, or a big enough crowd, I want you to say, they'll fly flags with your name on them. They'll put 50 cent bumper stickers on $50,000 cars. It's not hard to get a follower. 
who say and do the right things. So why doesn't Jesus, who knows this better than us, he knows the way the human heart ticks better than any marketing expert ever could. Why doesn't Jesus play on this? Why doesn't he show up? He knows what makes people passionate, what makes people move. Why doesn't he take that road? Because the horizon of his ambitions weren't about simply seeking the most people to follow him or get his name in mind. It's not at all. His ambitions, the thing that made the heart of Jesus beat, was his purpose for which he was to win us and all of our rebellion, all of our brokenness back to God. And the pathway to this is not gaining the biggest following. It's facing all the barriers that stand between God and us and overcoming them one by one. That's the purpose for which he came. That's what made his heart beat. The joy. The book of Hebrews talks about it as the joy that was set before him. The joy that, that made the heart of Jesus beat walk into what he was going to face was the delight of knowing that we might be one from our sin. That's why Jesus here wakes before going to the festival in secret. He wasn't lying to his brothers. He wasn't. But what he was doing here was making very clear he's not beholden to them or their expectations of what he should do or be. He is moved at the timetable of God. Now, I don't know if he got some kind of like he felt compelled after they left. Oh, maybe I should go, or what it was. But he wasn't operating on the timetable that his brothers would have expected. He was beholden to the purposes of God. And Jesus knew at this point in his ministry, when he's talking about time, you'll see that in the Gospel of John a lot. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus had a clock in his head, for lack of a better description. And at this point, Jesus knew he had a lot more to do. Much more left to teach. It wasn't time for him to show up in Jerusalem in a public way. Like you know, think of a, a Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, when Jesus is on the back of a donkey and the people are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Like, that's a big crowd. That's not going in secret. But we know how that ended in his crucifixion. Jesus is saying, it's not time for that. I still have uh, these disciples I have to invest in. I still have these friendships I have to invest in. I have these disciples who are going to become my emissaries, my ambassadors. I still have more to teach them. Not only that, we have to remember the significance of Jesus' life. What Jesus came to do is not something he could accomplish in a weekend. Now the centerpiece of his work for us is his crucifixion and resurrection. But there's a reason why Jesus didn't show up and do that in one weekend. He was coming to be one of us. He was coming to face the temptations that he was coming to face the deep darkness of our pain and our grief and entering every bit of it. And it's not something he was going to accomplish in a weekend. He was crucified at 33. It was three decades. Jesus came to identify with us in every way. We read earlier that Jesus was tempted like us in every way and did not give in to sin. We can gloss over that very easily. We face the deepest parts of our emotions, the darkest. And facing that, he lets us know, because we know where this story goes. We know crucifixion, we know resurrection, his vindication before God. But the reality that Jesus entered loneliness, that he entered betrayal, 
that he entered sickness and death, and he entered the lonely places of this world means that when we face those things, we are not alone in them. We are never alone in them. In the deepest and darkest parts of our lives, we are not alone. In the darkest temptations, the ones when it feels like our hearts are going to be pulled apart and saying, no, we are not alone. He has been tempted like us. And like the, the parable that Leo McGeary told at the beginning, he has jumped in the hole. And we say, what are you doing here? It's too dark for your glory. And he says, no, I've been here before and I know the Lord. He's been tempted like us. And he's there to lead us out of our temptations to the peace that God has for us. And not just temptations, but sorrow, friends. In our sorrow, we are not alone. Isaiah 53 speaks of him as a man of sorrows who is well acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. In our grief, Jesus is with us. He's there to tell us that our grief, no matter how deep and real, and really grieve, friends, there are things to grieve about in this world. Don't pretend like they are. Don't bottle it up. It'll come out somewhere else. There are real things to grieve in this world. But as we grieve, we look to Jesus. And what do we see that grief is not the end? That he is here to lead us out of the despair of grief and sorrow. And to bring us to the realization that in him, grief and sorrow have found their ending. He infuses our grief with purpose in his life. At this point in his ministry, dare I say that Jesus had more temptations to face. And that's why his time in there were lonely nights that he still needed to face. There was more grief to take on to himself. There was more ugliness in this world for him to confront face to face. He came to inhabit the death of him. From his living as a little child, growing into a young man, living in the obscurity of Nazareth and Galilee, working in the family business. Jesus was made like us in every way. Jesus was misunderstood time and time again. Jesus faced betrayal, the betrayal of a close friend. He had shame heaped on him. He was mocked, or in modern terms, he was bullied. He was abandoned. You ever been bullied? You ever been abandoned? You ever been <laughs> full of grief and sorrow? Jesus is there. So when he says here, his time did not fully come in verse 8. This is what he means. There's more of the depth of human experience for me to face. More for me to face that would enable me to sympathize with you in your weakness. The time of Jesus had not fully come until he had taken to himself all of these experiences, almost collecting them to himself. It's like a weird Pokemon. Gotta catch them. Gotta catch them all. I wasn't gonna say that. I deleted it. Sorry. <laughs> But he's almost collecting grief to himself to wear it on his shoulder. But here's the interesting thing about that, that phrase, my time has not yet come. It doesn't just mean he's got more to do. It also means that he knows what's coming. And he walks into it and he faces it with wide, eyes wide open. Now the times of my greatest grief in my life, if I could have saw him coming, I would have avoided him like the plague. I would have ran the other way. 
<laughs> I would have done everything I could to make that road go to the left or the right and not face straight on. But Jesus walked into it with eyes wide open, a grief that we cannot understand. A depth of grief that we cannot understand. That's the measure of his love for us. And here's the good news. I keep beating this strong, but it's because I think it's so foreign to our hearts to think that we're not alone in our loneliness. The good news is this. He inhabited these dark parts of humanity, the worst places we have to offer, and into those dark places he brings his life. I say this often. Grace is like water. It runs to the deepest point. So there's no deep or dark cavernous sin in your heart. Of sorrow, of misery, of despair in your heart. That Jesus has not descended into. To not just be with you as a shoulder to cry, but to lift you up and out. Not a single one. Of course, all of this leads to his crucifixion. With its pain, with its indignity, with its experience of reje being rejected, not just by friends, but the feeling of rejection by God into his death. And Jesus entered the, the worst of this. But why? Why? He, the eternal Son of God, descended that far, descended, came down that far, that he might lift us up out to himself. He came into the worst our world has to offer to lift us up, to crown us with glory and honor with Him. He descended to identify with us that we might be lifted up to identify with Him. One theologian calls this the J-curve. Jesus descends to lift us up. He descends to lift us up and to bring us with Him. So when Scripture talks about Him ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God the Father, we are seated with Him. It says that our life is hidden in Christ with God. The most important things about us are secure. And in that we have grace, an inheritance that cannot fade away. Because it's not made out of things that fade away. It's made out of the eternal law of the eternal Jesus lifts us up and out. And that's the good news of the resurrection. He joined the worst parts of our world, but what happened? He was vindicated by the Father. He was called forth from the grave, defeating even the finality of death. He's lifted up in victory, defeating death and its sting and its finality. And the best part, friends, if He is raised to new life, He does that as one of us. Jesus ascended on high and did not leave some of His body behind. He remains forever God and man joined together. God and man reconciled in one person that we as men and women might be reconciled to God. He has given us His joy. So for us, for you and me, Jesus knows the place of our pain. If, you're, if you've ever experienced or are experiencing poverty and don't know how to make ends meet, Jesus knows that. He speaks about being the Son of Man Himself who doesn't have a place to lay His head. Jesus lived in homelessness. He lived, uh, apparently, at times not knowing where the next meal was going to come from. He knows about being misunderstood. He knows gossip. He knows disease. 
He knows weariness and the need to get away. Read through the Gospels a number of times that Jesus flees from the crowd to go to lonely, lonely and desolate places. I don't want to say Jesus was an introvert necessarily, but he knew the need to get away. He knows busyness. He knows what the drain it can be. He knows loneliness. He knows physical pain. He knows fear. He knows dread of the future. He took them all to ourselves, himself that we might know in all of that, no matter what it is, we are not alone. We are never alone. Now I want to close this week. Reflecting on these truths made me think of a short story that I read years ago. And if you're part of me, I want to actually read the short story. It's not super long, but it it always reminds me of the reality of what Jesus came to do. It's called the Bag So rather than summarize it, I'm going to read it. So just focus in. It's like reading time at the library. <laughs> the Rag Man. Even before the dawn on Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags, rags, new rags for old. I'll take your tired rags, rags. I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I was not disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans and dead toys and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slid the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shone. She blinked from the gift to the gift. Then as he began to pull his cart away, the right man did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from the mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for gold. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops, and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, and whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity. And he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek. And I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him as he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw. For with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. After that, he found a drum, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick. And he took that blanket, and he wrapped it around himself for the drunk he left me close. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick, yet he went on with a terrible speed. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I need to see where he was going in such haste. 
perhaps to know what drove them so. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and I waited to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill with tormented labor. He cleared a little space on that hill, and then he sighed. He lay down, he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an old army blanket and died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junk car and I wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I have come to love the right man. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too but then on Sunday morning I was wakened by violence. Light. Pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding the blankets most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy, there was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I walked myself up to the ragman. And I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said with a dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the ragman of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come as those who have been born by you. Those who have heard this message. We come as those who you have come to. And Lord, as you've spoken to us through your word this morning, a word about your commitment, Jesus, to our good, to your love for us, I pray that you would imprint it on our hearts, God. That we would be those who never see ourselves as alone, even in the deepest parts of our lives. That you are with us, because you've been here before, you know the way out. Give us patience and faith in the midst of our struggles, Lord. And let us come to you, for you to dress us, not in the rags that we carry in our experiences. Whether that be our sin that we've committed, the sins that have been done against us. Whether that be our natural weaknesses or whatever. May we be clothed in Christ. Knowing that we are righteous in your sight. And if we're righteous in your sight, who else can say anything else? Let that be our words, the fountain that we come back to time and time again. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.